we almost ran out of dogs. That's not exactly true, but it's close. The shelters were emptied out. Over the last year, millions of people who didn't have a dog decided that they needed a dog. And this, this is a podcast about how we decide and where we got one. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about Dalmatians and pit bulls and collies and the no-kill movement. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Make things better. That's the goal. Make things better by making better things. That's marketing. Marketing works. It works because we show up in the world with something that makes a change for the better. And we've discovered the single best way to learn marketing. It's called the Marketing Seminar, an interactive, ongoing, discussion-based, project-based workshop that actually works. It's back. It's back again at akimbo.com go. Find all the details. If you are serious about changing the culture, if you are serious about showing up in a way that grows your project, your business, your cause, I hope you'll check out the Marketing Seminar. It's at akimbo.com go. It's back. It works because you do. We'll see you there. What kind of dog do you have? That's a fascinating question, isn't it? Because all the dogs in the world evolved over time, aided by artificial selection, from exactly the same thing, a wolf. There's no such thing as a purebred dog. There are inbred dogs, but no purebred dogs. And left to their own devices, dogs would eventually evolve back to one sort of uber dog. And yet we have dog breeds, and yet when we say, what kind of dog do you have, we don't expect the answer to be loyal or fun or a puppy. People might say, I have a mutt, or they might even say, I have a Dalmatian. And as soon as they tell you what kind of dog they have, they start to get judged. Judged by us, judged by lots of people. It's a little bit like, what kind of car do you drive? The thing is that there are fads and fashions and trends in what kind of dogs appeal to what kind of people. So that's point number one. Point number two, decades ago, when Nathan Winograd pioneered the no-kill movement, I don't think in his wildest dreams he expected that shelters would be emptied out and that the entire shelter system would be completely different than it was when he started. When I pulled into the parking lot my first day and there was somebody in the parking lot with a box of kittens that his cat had because he didn't spay his cat and, you know, the kittens weren't his problem, they were going to be our problem. And I remember literally that's what greeted as I pulled into the parking lot my first day and I remember thinking, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? And it was one of those things where you dare to dream, you know, what if you ran a shelter that saved all the animals? Why couldn't we do that? Today we have 200 cities and towns across the country, about 54 different counties that have ended the killing of savable animals in their shelters, and they have returned the term euthanasia to its dictionary definition and uh, essentially what it was meant to be from the beginning. Back when we adopted our first shelter dog, Lucy, Lucy the Wonder Dog, 
It was about 30 years ago. There were only a handful of shelters to visit. We had to look up in the yellow pages where to go. And these shelters, they were extremely sad places. First of all, most of them were in the business of killing dogs and cats. That the typical city animal shelter had to deal with the city. They were the dog catcher. They collected strays from the streets. And if they couldn't find a home for them in two or three days, they, quote, euthanized the dog. That was their job. That's what they did. And I still remember the dogs that were available at the SPCA that we visited all those years ago. That has shifted. The internet changes things because the internet spreads information faster than physical goods could spread on their own. So number one, a site like PetFinder shows you dozens, hundreds, thousands of dogs sorted exactly the way you would expect, just like a real estate site. Oh, here's a puppy, here's a puppy, here's a dog, here's an older dog, here's a dog that needs a lot of care. There's no comments on these sites. That is what would make them fully social media friendly. But you can see lots of dogs without leaving your home. Interesting to note, most of the dogs you're seeing aren't in an actual shelter, depending on where you live. They're in a foster home. This was one of the things that Nathan pioneered. Instead of locking dogs up in dog jail, why not find people who might not be able to take a dog forever, but who are happy to hold on to the dog for three or four weeks while we look for a forever home for that dog? Now, some of these people are extraordinarily generous, keeping more dogs and then giving them up over time after they fall in love with them, acting as a halfway house for dogs looking for a home. But once you start that process, well, then you don't need a shelter at all because what you can have instead are dogs from, say, far away from a place where there aren't a lot of people who want to adopt a dog like that, being exposed to people who are close by and then running some sort of rescue operation, bringing the dogs to the place once you find someone who wants that dog after they've done, I don't know, an interview via Zoom, meeting the dog on camera. But one other thing you'll notice if you visit these sites is just how many pit bulls there are. Now, pit bull isn't even an official, in quotes, breed of dog. It is a collection of breeds that have all been lumped together particularly in the United States, as pit bulls. Why are there so many pit bulls up for adoption? About 30 years ago, pit bulls were 2 or 3% of all the dogs that you might see in a typical place up for adoption. Now, according to some estimates, they're 50%, 60% in some places. Why is that happening? Before we can go into that, I want to talk for a minute about famous dogs. It turns out that if a dog shows up in a great role on TV or movies... I can't read my paper. Eddie's staring at me. <laughs> well, you do make quite a picture in the morning. <laughs> Just ignore him. I'm trying to. I'm talking to the dog. <laughs> then it becomes instantly popular to be adopted. Think about the Jack Russell Terrier that was on Frasier. That was a good day if you were a Jack Russell Terrier breeder because suddenly lots and lots of people decided this was the dog for them. Again, breeds don't exist. We invented them. There is no such thing as a purebred dog. It's simply a label. 
We can't guarantee that a dog is going to act a certain way. Just because you have a golden retriever doesn't mean you're a certain kind of person. And that golden retriever might be a real jerk of a dog. A lot of it depends on how that dog has been trained and how it has been brought up. So with all of that said, we've got this desire among the public to have a dog that looks like us, that makes us proud to own it. Why does Dog Finder even show us pictures of the dog? What difference does it make? If we think about it, the appearance of a dog in a little picture is a little bit like a dating site, but also not like a dating site because we're not dating the dog. The dog is our companion. And yet we are driven by the fact that that dog looks like the kind of dog we want to own. How do we decide if a dog looks like that? So then on to the prevalence of pit bulls. Pit bulls spread through the United States, primarily from the South, primarily from people of lower status in terms of economic class, people who admired the dogs because of their appearance and strength, but also people who, because they were perhaps from lower status economic classes, did things like breed them themselves in their backyard as opposed to seeking paperwork from an official breeder. Add to that the fact that some of the people, a few, took this dog, this dog that was bred for strength, and also trained them to be aggressive. The breed itself is not more aggressive. One study, which I'll link to in the show notes, has shown that they are less aggressive than many other dogs that have better PR, but they can be trained to be quite aggressive and even dangerous, which leads to PBL, pit bull legislation. And in many states, provinces, cities, towns, you're not allowed to have a pit bull. So what happens if you're not allowed to have a pit bull and you have one? Well, one thing that happens is you don't bring it to the vet. And since you don't bring it to the vet, the dog hasn't been neutered or spayed. And since that's the case, it's more likely to have puppies. It also turns out that pit bulls have more puppies in a litter than many other kinds of dogs. It also turns out that some of the people who have pit bulls are breeding them in their backyard, and it multiplies. And it also turns out, it seems, that there is a culture among sophisticated breeders that if they can't get rid of their dogs, they euthanize them themselves. Whereas among pit bull breeders, if they can't get rid of their dogs, they dump them at the shelter. Add to this the fact that a different category of pet adopter doesn't want a pit bull. They don't want to deal with social approbation. They don't want to deal with what they see as a risk of having that pit bull in their life. They can easily identify a pit bull from a photo even though, and we'll talk about this in a second, the origin of the pit bull online might be hidden. When you add all of that up, there are more pit bulls in the system, and many of the people in the system have drawn a bright line and saying, I'll adopt lots of different kinds of dogs, but not a pit bull. And so, just like credit default swaps, we end up with a system that's filled with a fungible item that's mixed in with lots of other items, and it makes it hard for people to find the thing that they're actually looking for. Okay, so back to the dynamics of SEO for dogs. If you are committed to the no-kill movement, if you've got dogs on your hands that you're looking to get adopted, part of the game you're trying to play 
is to get more people who visit PetFinder to look at your dog, to get them to visit with your dog, to get them to adopt the dogs you are trying so valiantly to find a good home for. So here's one thing you do. Don't call it a pit bull. Make it so that when people search for the dog, they're seeing, oh, it's a Labrador mix. Oh, it's a shepherd mix. No, it's a pit bull. It's really clear it's a pit bull. There is not a button on PetFinder that says, don't show me pit bulls. That would be a better user experience for many people who have already decided what kind of dog looks like them, what kind of dog they are seeking, but it's not on offer because the system really wants people to look at dogs for how they behave, not for how it's so easy to stereotype them. The second thing that's going on on PetFinder with dog adoption is this. It looks like there's a whole bunch of dogs you can get with one-click shopping, Amazon style. But in fact, ethical shelters, ethical fosters are saying, you know what, you need to apply to get one of our dogs. We need to do a background check on you. We need to make sure that you're going to be a good home for this dog. And I applaud that. But it takes at least three or four weeks for your application to go through. And by the time it does, that dog, that dog's not available anymore, particularly if it's a famous dog, if it's the kind of dog that's in vogue, that's fashionable right now. So what's actually going on in many places where PetFinder is popular is a bait and switch. Put up a picture of a dog that you know someone isn't going to be able to adopt. Maybe it's a dog that got adopted out two years ago, but it attracts someone who then applies, who then you earn permission from, who then you're able to go back and forth with, and then when they're finally approved, you show them the dogs that are available, and you've used the original dog simply as window dressing. The other thing that I'm seeing is that on Craigslist, puppy mills are now pretending to be shelters, that what will happen is you will search, for example, for puppy on Craigslist, and you will find a whole bunch of places that say they are fostering a dog. But when you start looking at the maps and how many other listings they have, they're not fostering these puppies. They're just creating puppies in a puppy mill fashion, selling them in New York for $500 each. And yeah, if they grow a little too old to be called puppies, they dump them at the shelter. So all of this fills me with hope, but it's also a tragedy. It's a tragedy because human beings manipulate a system for profit without worrying about what's going to happen to that dog when it grows up. It's a tragedy because like all humans, we stereotype. We put things into categories because we don't have time to spend an hour with every potential dog. And so we say this category, not interested. At the same time, we get ourselves in trouble because we fall in love with the category without thinking deeply about what that dog, what that person, what that situation is really like. But if it's famous, if it's celebrity related, bring it on. Because we look in the mirror, we look at the dog, we think about what kind of person we are. All of which, a long way to say that information changes everything information about which dogs are in vogue, information about who has status, information about who we are affiliating with, information about which dog is where and why. And as information keeps going faster, it continues to reshape our culture. So like all my podcasts about dogs, this one's dedicated to my pup Baxter. 
He and I have made it through a year together. He's here in the studio with me today. What do you think, Baxter? (laughs) Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with a couple questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth, this is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or a previous episode or just about anything else, please visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K and click the appropriate button. Here we go. Hi, Seth. My name is Dave and I'm calling from Allentown, Pennsylvania. I'm originally from Buffalo, New York. Uh, I'm a college professor, a writer, a lawyer, and I uh, recently turned 60. And just was curious, from your experience over the years from working in different things, um, in terms of ideas, I've generated hundreds of ideas over the years. I've gone forward with some of them. I haven't gone forward with other ones. And there really seems to be no common thread or pattern for the ones that I went forward with, for the ones that I chose not to go forward with, for the ones that worked, for the ones that didn't work. And I was just wondering either on a personal level for you or from your experience in working with people, um, if you see a common thread in terms of ideas and what works and what doesn't work or what people choose to pursue and what they choose not to pursue. Anyways, as always, thanks for everything that you do. Really appreciate it. Thank you for this, Dave. We get back to the idea of design thinking. Who's it for and what's it for? This idea that we're thinking of pursuing, what's it for? Is it to make a living right now, this week? Is it to build an asset, an entity, something at scale? Is it to show other people that we have a clever idea? Is it to make a change in the world that we care about? Is it to impress ourselves, our neighbors, our parents, with something that we do all day. Because in the modern industrial economy, many people define themselves by their job. What do you do is a similar question to who are you? And so when we're looking at an idea, it's complicated. And many of the people I know who are stuck are stuck because A, sunk costs, hoarding the chips, realizing deep down that they can't walk away from what they've built, even though they should, and picking something for the wrong reasons and then being surprised when the thing they picked is good at what they picked. So if you love, for example, the music business, which we'll talk about in a little bit, it's not clear to me that you should work 
in the music business because most of your job is not actually spent making music. It is spent being in business. And you picked an industry where it's really hard to make a living and you're adjacent to but not touching the thing that gives you joy. Better, perhaps, to pick a project to work on that makes you a decent living, that fills you with energy, but at the end of the day, gives you the freedom to actually make music. So I would ask back to you, these ideas that you're juggling with, why haven't you killed most of them? And the ones you're nurturing and nursing along, why haven't you launched them? What is it you're hoping for? What is it that you are afraid of? If we wait until it's an emergency because the rent is due or someone's pushing us or we're about to run out of time, it's probably too late already. So the mature professional thing that we have to do is be really clear about what success looks like and then take a look at the world and say, has anyone succeeded in the way that I am hoping to succeed? I hope that's a good place to start. Thank you for this one, Dave. As an executive, uh, part of the music business, every time I hear you explain your theory about racing to the bottom, well, I think I think our business is just the perfect example for it. So I know you've been describing it, uh, taking examples from the book publishing business. But um, I feel pretty much is the same situation that, that music is going through. So I know you're a music lover, and I would love to know uh, your ideas and reflections on the music business itself, its current situation, and its future. Thank you very, very much for all you do. I really appreciate it, and thank you. So Alejandro, this is a short question with perhaps a seven-hour answer, but I'll try to give a shorter one. Music industry. Well, what makes something an industry is that effort and investment over time turn into more than you put into it. There was a vibrant steel industry for a long time. You didn't have to be a genius to make a living building something in the steel industry. You simply had to find your spot, invest in it, work on it, and it would go up in value. That is not the way the music industry works today. It did work that way for a long time. Today, my friend in the music business told me, 30,000 new songs will be released on Spotify, and yesterday and the day before that. That most industries, at some point, are based on scarcity. And the scarcity in the music business there were three parts to it. One, scarcity of talented, passionate musicians. Two, scarcity of slots at the record store. And three, scarcity of DJ time, scarcity of radio stations, scarcity of spectrum. So if you could somehow figure out how to build an entity that would attract the hardest working, most talented musicians and could use the scale of that entity to get you radio time and could use the scale of that entity to get you in the record store, you were going to succeed. Day after day, week after week. It doesn't matter whether it's Wyndham Hill or Motown. You turn the crank, you turn the crank. It's going to work. And now, what's the world like? Number one, 
there is no scarcity of competent musicians. Thanks to electronics, thanks to the idea that people can use Pro Tools in their basement or their living room, the number of people who can make a song auto-tuned that sounds good to the pop audience is so much bigger than it used to be. I was at a wedding a little while ago, and that wedding band sounded good enough to be on the radio. And there are lots of wedding bands that are now good enough to be on the radio. Number two, radio's pretty much gone. And for a new generation, it has been replaced by the infinite number of channels offered by YouTube, Spotify, Pandora, and the rest. There is no scarcity there. And even if there was, there's no one to do payola with. There's no easy way to buy a big share of the market. And number three, the record store is gone. It's gone in two ways. Number one, if you really want to buy a record or a CD, you're doing it online. Infinite shelf space. Everyone's listed. And number two is if you're streaming, you're not making a particularly large amount of money with almost any of your acts because you're making tenths of a penny, not dollars. So when we add all that up, what we see is there is no shortage of music. There is more music to choose from than at any time in the history of man. But there is a shortage of opportunities to treat it like an industry. So if you get joy out of being a self-published musician, please go do that. If you want to be the next Van Morrison, I got to say I'm not sure there's going to be a next Van Morrison, a next Marvin Gaye. I think that the Vandellas and the Pips and the rest of the people that folks like I grew up with aren't going to be replicated anytime soon because scarcity at some level creates value. And right now we don't have scarcity. What we have instead is a lottery, a free-for-all, and plenty to choose from. Thanks to all for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.
www.thinkdigital.com.